Hear my prayer, O Lord. Let my cry come to you. Do not hide your face from me. In the day of my distress, incline your ear to me. Answer me speedily in the day when I call. Those are the first two verses of Psalm 102, which is the psalm appointed for today, Friday, June the 3rd, 2022. You're listening to Faith Seeking Understanding, and I'm your host, John Green. Thanks for being along today. We are continuing a look at um, the prophecy of Ezekiel today. We've jumped forward significantly to chapter 34, verses 17 to 31, which is God announcing a, a new covenant, as it were, uh, a new way of being. And then we're in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 10, verses 38 to 42, and continuing in the Epistle to the Hebrews, chapter 8, verses 1 through 13. So here God has, is announcing the good news to his people in exile. They're in Babylon, and so here he's announcing his intention for the future. And, and you're going to hear echoes of all kinds of things in this passage today. As for you, my flock, thus says the Lord, behold, I judge between sheep and sheep, between rams and male goats. And think about Jesus talking about the sheep on the right, the goats on the left, and and then the judgment that comes in those two things in Matthew 25. Is 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 it not enough for you to feed on the good pasture, that you must tread down with your feet the rest of your pasture, and to drink of clear water, that you must muddy the rest of the water with your feet? And must my sheep eat what you have trodden with your feet and drink what you have muddied with your feet? He's speaking here to the leaders, to the leaders of Israel. So what he's saying is is that, that not only do you get the best part for yourselves, you ruin everything else as well. It's interesting. I've got a, I, I took up a, a new hobby, I guess, about six months ago, and that's feeding raccoons. And so I have a bunch of them that come every night. Um, and sometimes they don't all come, but then there there are others that do. There's one though that one of the things I put out are are peanuts in the shell. And so there's there's one um, raccoon who it's obvious when he's there because he's the only one who does this. I have to put out I put out water as well. Well, what he does is he puts his peanuts in the water and and it's cold water, but but it looks like he's boiling peanuts and then he just takes them out of the shell, but he softens them up by putting them in the water, which is, you know, an ingenious thing to do. Um, but the other side of it is is and he's the only one who does it. Not a single one of the others does this. But but what's it's ingenious on the one hand, but on the other hand, what it does is it ruins that water. Nobody can drink it after he's been there. And so you can see this this idea of um, the that Jesus says that you put yokes on other people that you're not willing to bear yourselves. You tie up burdens on them that you're not willing to bear. And so then he comes to the people and says, my yoke is easy, my burden is light. And that's exactly what what he what God is accusing them of here, and that is is that taking the best part for themselves, but then also ruining everything that's left over, and so that he he um, tears into them over this and, and accuses them of ruining everything. Therefore, thus says the Lord God to them: Behold, I, I myself, will judge between the fat sheep and the lean sheep, because you push with side and shoulder and thrust at all the weak with your horns till you've scattered them abroad. I'll rescue my flock, they shall no longer be a prey, and I will judge between sheep and sheep, and I'll set up over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he shall feed them. He shall feed them and be their shepherd. Now, what is it that Jesus says in John 10, for instance? He says that he is the good shepherd, and he speaks of other flocks that he'll bring in as well. And so it's not just over the remnant of Judaism who comes in and believes in 
him and, and allows him to be their good shepherd. Now, Jesus says there's other flocks, and that, that other sheep and other flocks that I have to bring in as well. And so Jesus claims for himself the title of good shepherd, which would mean also that, that there's two things in, in view there. And one is Psalm 23, where God is the shepherd, and, and it's his flock, period, end of sentence. Nobody else has a claim to that flock other than him. But then um, it's also this passage in vision, I will set over them one shepherd, and he shall feed them. He shall feed them and be their shepherd, and I, the Lord, will be their God. And my servant David shall be prince among them. I am the Lord. I've spoken. And we know Jesus is the Son of God, but he's also in the flesh the Son of David. And so we, we know these things about him, and, and then what do we, how do we see him in light of all of this? And he's the fulfillment of this prophecy, the perfect fulfillment of the prophecy. But then Jesus sets up other shepherds, because what does he tell Peter late in John's gospel, in John 21? He tells him, um, feed my sheep. Well, whose sheep are they? Well, they're, they're Jesus's sheep. Well, all right, what does that mean? Well, they're God's sheep. So it says something uh, about his claim to unity with the Father. He says, I'll make with them a covenant of peace and banish wild beasts from the land so that they may dwell securely in the wilderness and sleep in the woods. And so they're, they're not, it's not just in the cities where God's going to do this. It will be the entire land. He's going to restore the land to something that it never actually achieved. And, and we're waiting to see that same thing. I'll make them and all the places around my hill a blessing, and I'll send down the showers in their season. They shall be showers of blessing. Now, notice he doesn't say, I'm going to send them all the time. He says, I'm going to send them in their season. I've spoken about this before, that one of the things that in Judaism that's truly interesting is, is that when it's rainy season, then it's okay to pray for rain. But you don't pray for rain when it's not rainy season. You're thankful for the dew. Because the dew comes all the time. It, it is sort of hard-baked into the system that it comes all the time. But they don't, they don't pray for rain when it's not time for rain. And I think that's one of the things that we need to understand and be better at is understanding seasons of life. And are we praying for tomorrow's blessings today? Or are we waiting and listening to him? And, and so it, it, when he says that anything you ask for, you'll receive, it, it sometimes requires the right season to be there for the fulfillment of that um, blessing and promise. And here he says, I'll send down the showers in their season, and there'll be showers of blessing, and the trees of the field will yield their fruit, and the earth shall yield its increase. That word increase could also be translated as strength. There's another place where that language, that same language, is used, and that's in Genesis 4. It's after Cain has killed Abel. It's, the, it's part of the curse on Cain is the, the earth will no longer yield its strength or its increase. And so there's a reversal of that curse. And they shall be secure in their land, and they'll know that I'm the Lord when I break the bars of their yoke and deliver them from the hand of those who enslave them. Now, that is referring to the Babylonians, but it's not just referring to the Babylonians. Jesus says that some of the people who were enslaving the people of his day are actually the Jewish leaders, the Pharisees and the scribes, the ones that he calls hypocrites. And so it's important that we understand who enslaves us. There shall be no more a prey to the nations, nor shall the beasts of the land devour them. They'll dwell securely, and none shall make them afraid. And I'll provide for them renowned plantations, so that they shall no more be consumed with hunger in the land, and no longer suffer the reproach of the nations. 
So the curse will be completely reversed from where they are now in Babylon, that they're going to come back to the land, and the land is going to be even greater than it was when their fathers possessed the land. And they'll dwell securely in that place. And then they'll know that I'm the Lord their God and with them. And that they, the house of Israel, are my people, declares the Lord God. And you're my sheep, human sheep of my pasture, and I'm your God, declares the Lord God. So th- th- this is, there's Psalm 80 imagery in here. There's um, Genesis 4 imagery here. There's multiple places where you can hear Jesus speaking in these same kinds of terms and that making the same kinds of promises to his people. But the promises await a final fulfillment in the eschaton, in the world to come, after Jesus has come and judged the world. In the gospel today, they're continuing on their way. Remember, Jesus had set his face toward Jerusalem. He had sent the 72 ahead of him to proclaim the coming of the kingdom. And, and so now they're, they come on their way, and he entered a village. And a woman, we know where this is, by the way, it's Bethany, because John tells us in his gospel. And it's interesting here that what's not mentioned, and, and see if you can figure out what it, who is not mentioned actually here. A woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. And she had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. Now, that's a really unusual thing. Women weren't usually allowed to teach. They were taught by their husbands or by their fathers. They weren't taught. They didn't come and sit at the feet of a teacher and listen. So it's very presumptuous that Mary has done this. But it it also says something about Jesus's attitude and the early church's attitude towards women. So Jesus was perfectly fine. He did not rebuke her for being in this place. In fact, he commends her for being in this place. Martha was distracted by much serving, and she went up to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her then to help me. So, in other words, she's saying he, everything she's doing is wrong, and she's, she's causing me to have to do all this hospitality work myself. And I've told you again and again about this idea of hospitality being really the single cardinal virtue in uh, Judaism. And, and so it's a big deal that she's not helping. I mean, there, there's, there are multiple issues with Mary not helping Martha in this instance, and yet the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha. You're anxious and troubled about many things, but one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion, which will not be taken away from her. So Jesus says that not only am I not going to rebuke uh, Mary for, for being here, sitting at my feet, listening to my teaching, I'm actually commending her for that very thing. The most important thing, he says, is, is this teaching. And you're allowing all this other stuff to distract you from those things. It doesn't mean that hospitality is less important. It just means that in this instance, Jesus is the host, not them. The real food is what he's giving in this teaching. And so it's already prepared, and she need not worry about this thing. We see that same idea of hospitality, by the way, in the, in the feeding miracles that Jesus does, that, that he is the host of the feast. And so it's incumbent upon him to provide for his guests in the same way that he does with the first miracle at the wedding in Canaan Galilee, where he turns the water into wine. And so it's a first gift is a gift of hospitality, which is, again, the cardinal virtue in Judaism. So we see in this that, that the most important thing that Jesus says is feeding his flock, and he's feeding his flock, and Mary sees herself as part of that, and he commends it. So what's missing, or who's missing in that scene? Lazarus. 
And so the only gospel that mentions the most dramatic miracle that Jesus does in his lifetime, which is, you know, before the resurrection, the one that he does is the raising of Lazarus from the dead. And yet here we don't even see Lazarus in the picture. Well, why in the world would that be? And why is John the only gospel that, that provides us with that story? Because surely it would have been the most important story anybody could have told. But that story was so well known And the other big problem is John tells us that they wanted to kill Lazarus to do away with the evidence of the miracle that Jesus had done. And so what what scholars have always believed is is that John's gospel was written after the the death of Lazarus, the final death of Lazarus, and that these gospels were written prior to that, and they didn't want to draw any further attention to Lazarus. And so here, Luke doesn't even mention him in the scene. You can guarantee, though, that, that that gospel story that John tells is true. And you can guarantee that because Luke writes another book, the book of Acts, which comes after. And so that story would have been there, and there was no need to write it until John wrote it as the last gospel to be written. In the Hebrews passage today, remember the argument here is is that Jesus is a priest after the order of Melchizedek, a priesthood that, that endures from forever into forever, not a perpetual priesthood, but an eternal priesthood. And so that's a greater thing is what he said, because he goes not just into the temple, but he goes into the holy of holies, the true holy of holies, the throne room of God. Remember that the Ark of the Covenant is there in the holy of holies, in the in the most holy place. But what is it? It's the footstool of God. So the footstool of God's throne is on the earth, but his throne is in heaven, and that's where Jesus is. So he's passed through not to the footstool, but to the very throne room of God. He says, now, it, the point in what we're saying is this. We have such a high priest who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places, the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. What he's going to give us here is, is some Greek philosophy. We're going to look at Plato is the way that, that he would see this, and which is to say that, that everything on earth is a copy of an ideal. Jung would call these things archetypes. Plato calls them the ideal. So the, the, a chair, for instance, here on earth is a copy of what is greater than that. The true thing is not on earth. Everything we have are copies. And so that's exactly the way that the writer here is going to argue this point. For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. Thus, it's necessary for this priest also to have something to offer. Now, if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. Jesus wouldn't be, because He's not in the ironic line. They serve a copy and a shadow of the heavenly things. So there's this ideal thing that's in heaven, and then we have copies of those things on earth, but they, they don't reach or achieve the ideal. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God, saying, See that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown to you on the mountain. So the, the pattern is, is a, a copy. It's, it's telling him how to make a copy of the ideal thing. And whatever the ideal thing is, is whatever God sees as the ideal thing. And it's important for us to see those distinctions, that that Moses did this thing as a copy of the true tabernacle, the true throne of God, and, and how you receive access to God. And so it's important that he be given the pattern on the mountain directly from God himself. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is much more excellent than the old, as the covenant he mediates is better, since it's enacted on better promises. 
What are those promises? Well, they're they're the promise of eternal life, for one thing. They're the promise of the gift of the Holy Spirit, the presence of God among his people as they go about the work of doing the things that he told them to do. If that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. And now what he's going to do is he's going to drop back and he's going to talk about that second covenant and say, look, this is not some Christian ease. That, that has been made up by the church. No, no, no. He's going to point us back, and he's going to do an extended quote here from Jeremiah 31 that, that shows us, no, 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 this is not a Christian thing. It's not something that was cooked up you know, by the church. Nope. It goes back to Jeremiah. And why is he going to do that? Well, the reason he's going to do it is, remember what the, what the main issue here is, is that these people are kind of hedging their bets, and they're going back to Judaism because Jesus hasn't come back yet, and they had expected him to. So he's pointing constantly to Jewish things and saying, Jesus is better than that. And now what he's going to do is to say, look, I didn't make this up about this second covenant. This is is language from Jeremiah. I'm just going to give you an extended quote there. He says, for he finds fault with them when he says, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I'll establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Jacob, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, for they did not continue in my covenant, and so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I'll make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I'll put my laws in their minds and write them on their hearts, and I'll be their God, and they'll be my people. Which is exactly the same stuff that he's saying in Ezekiel as well. Well, there's no no reason to, to doubt that he would say the same thing to Jeremiah that he said to Ezekiel. They're prophesying to the same people. And so he's talking about this new covenant, and they could have come to the conclusion that that new covenant uh, is put in place whenever they come back to the land out of Babylon and into the temple. And then Jesus says, no, the temple's going to go away. That's going to go away, and it's not that important in the grand scheme of things. Ultimately, it's not important because it's gone, and it can't, so it can't be of supreme importance to God if it's not established. And so Jesus is pointing to that time, but they could have understood themselves as being in that covenant after the return from Babylon. No, it, it awaited a much longer fulfillment period than that. But, but it's the giving of the Holy Spirit is what he's talking about when he says, I'll put my laws in their minds and write them on their hearts, and I'll be their God and they'll be my people. He's talking about giving the Holy Spirit, that, that the law will be in us. It will not be something that's external to us. We have to know it through the Word of God, but then we understand it through the power of the Holy Spirit dwelling in us that causes us not only to understand but to desire and to understand even further that He's a good God, and these are good laws. These are good things. These are the ways that He would have us live, and if we live according to those laws and those rules that He's given, then then we'll be blessed, that this is actually the best way to be. He said, they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. He makes no distinction when he gives the Spirit, and that's exactly what Paul's argument is in 1 Corinthians. He says, look, not not many of you were great debaters, not many of you were rich, not many of you were, were wise. But he's not saying that's who you are today. He says, before you were given the Holy Spirit, before you came to know Jesus, that's who you were. That characterized you, but it no longer characterizes you because you've been given his Holy Spirit. Now, if you just have to live by the Holy Spirit, rather than continuing to seek wisdom from other people who come in to deceive you with their words, he says, no, you know him. You've been given the Holy Spirit to teach you these things. 
don't exalt men because God doesn't make distinction. That's exactly what he says there. From the least of them to the greatest, for I'll be merciful toward their iniquities and I'll remember their sins no more. Well, how can he do that? Can God overlook sin? Is it possible that God just decides, well, you know, it's, it's all really not that important? Well, it can't be true. That cannot be true. I will put my laws into their mouths and write them on their hearts. So God can't just overlook sin. So he's got to do something in order that he can be merciful towards iniquities and remember their sins no more. There has to be something that happens inside us or outside of us as well in the coming of Christ and his taking on our sins on the cross. And and so they're forgotten for love of his son and for his son's righteousness, which is imputed to us. He says, in speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. And what's becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. And and so the, they, this is probably written before the fall of the temple in AD 70, because the, they, they wouldn't be able to go back to that. If, they were, if, if that's what they were doing, was they were reverting to the old system, they wouldn't be able to do it. After AD 70, there's no place to make sacrifices any longer. So so he says, he, he's saying, even the covenant that you're trying to hang on to it, it is not good. It's obsolete, he says. It, it's no longer there. It's no longer in force. There, there's a new covenant in the blood of Jesus. And, and that's the way we enter into the covenant is through baptism and faith in the blood of Jesus.